0: So welcome everybody to this podcast um, in the series called To Hell and Back, which is really about in our lives how we end up in various forms of hell and uh, then how we make our way through, hopefully, and, and get back on our feet or get back into life. And uh, And this particular one is the third of three um, they're labeled on my website charlieswenson.com. The, these three are labeled in saying there it's a conversation with Cedar Coons and so this will be the third conversation with Cedar uh about the experience that she had of uh having her sister kill herself uh, over two years ago and then uh, come to grips with that over time um, and what the what she went through I think in the first two podcasts there's a, a lot of detail about who she has been who her family has been the culture she grew up in um, uh, who the principal players are and then uh, this and and then the second one really got much more into the d- details of uh, of her sister Carlton um, going through a kind of downward spiral uh, toward the end of her life um, and then, uh, uh, killing herself and, uh, and then Cedar learning of that and, and then living with that and going through a lot with her family, um, and all the aftermath and then, uh, eventually getting back on her feet. And, um, and so what I'm hoping we can get to today is, um, as much as we can learn from Cedar, who is uh, listening into this right now and she'll join us in a minute but uh, as much as we can learn from Cedar about the details of what it means that she um, used uh, mindfulness experiences practices skills from the point of view of DBT skills uh, a, as a way of getting to acceptance uh, and in some situations forgiveness um, for what had happened um, and uh, and that that I just think it's just a a lesson of uh, decline and recovery in a way Uh, So let me just say a a thing about Cedar and then a brief summary of where we've been to set the stage for this conversation further Um, Cedar is in an amazing position to discuss this Um, it's tragic that this happened to her in her life but as, as she's a person who's spent her career focused on suicide and uh, prevention and treatment of suicide, suicide risk. Um, from a long time ago, I've known Cedar, Cedar, uh, as she got involved in DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy. She published, uh, about that, including a, a really important, uh, early research article. And, uh, then she's gone on to, uh, also become a mindfulness expert and teaches um, mindfulness meditation retreats she's an expert teacher of dbt and all of dbt skills and so it puts her in a unique position to um, reflect on what's well, how she coped with what's happened um, she also published a book called the mindfulness solution to intense emotions um, and if you went to her website uh, which is a beautiful website uh, with lovely it's just looking at it is calming and um, and there's uh, lots of things on her website including uh, blog posts including five blog posts about this story about her sister so you can read about it in the posts from November and December um, but and then there's other posts as well that are really interesting and and um, soulful um, so that's uh, I just wanted to say that about Cedar and then I wanted to just uh, introduce this a little bit by uh, giving you guys a, uh, a quick summary for those who have listened to the previous ones these will sound familiar and maybe shape up things in a certain direction because as I listened again to the conversations we've had I was thinking um, God how 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 generalizable is Cedar's experience um, one thing I realize in just listening to it is that when there is a suicide there are so many variables like probably an infinite number of variables that affect how it goes and how the aftermath goes and how it is to be a person who um, was close to the person who's, who killed themselves and uh, in Cedar's case uh, of course this is true um, she came from a certain community in uh, Louisville Kentucky a certain kind of culture in that community and one thing she talked about very meaningfully I think is that uh, you know without without casting uh, any judgments one way or the other about the community it did have a quality of being um, kind of um, that kind of um, we're all fine here things are good sort of community where the expression of negative emotions or negative experiences was not necessarily out front and so that her sister had a big uh quality of that in that she was a local celebrity artistically, and she was uh beautiful and uh charismatic, and lots of people knew her, and people wouldn't have known how much uh must have been that she was suffering um, with depression and with maybe a bipolar disorder and which and just chaos in her life you know she had difficulty in marriages and uh, two children to raise, that both of whom have had disabilities. All, all, all of this going on uh, behind the scenes, from most people's point of view, maybe. Though of course Cedar knew most of that, but even Cedar didn't know all of that. Um, one's religious background, the family history of deaths and suicides. I mean, before Carlton killed herself, uh, her father, who was just over a hundred years old, killed. Uh, died and uh, was uh, more of a, a natural death that's easier to accept even though it was painful because it sounds like he was a very important patriarch in the family and represented lots of values and and Cedar in particular uh, identified ways in which she was sort of like him he was somebody in World War two who got uh, medals for uh, how he performed in combat and kept going um, And, uh, then there's the, then there's the personal style of the person who died. It has a huge impact, I realized, on how things go. I mean, this was somebody who, when she killed herself, uh, her life was in disarray. Uh, all, both physical things, material things, relationships, um, uh, will, estate planning, her will. I mean, all these things were, like, undone. And so, If you're a person who comes in in the middle of that I mean it's a different kind of loss than the person who has uh, everything is organized Um, and uh, and also I think it's important to note that Cedars relationship to the family was interesting she did not find the style of this culture she grew up in uh, that really doesn't have uh, emotions or negative emotions out front to be very conducive to her. And she moved away when she was 17 and never came back um, to live there again. And later in her life, moved on to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico area where she lives now. Um, So that too, it's sort of like she was one step removed from what some people were going through, but stayed involved in various ways, had kind of a distant relationship with the older sister, Raleigh turns out to be important uh, as another factor when this suicide occurred uh, because she and Raleigh over the estate uh, discussions and uh, executor discussions uh, became more estranged. Then I wanted to say that uh, next that just, I I don't know how universal this is and maybe people listening who've been through this would identify more or less with this, but there it seemed to me, Cedar, there was a kind of a stage-by-stage thing you went through and I would put it this way just to summarize um, because I think using skills probably is different in different stages and one stage seemed to be leading up to Carlton's suicide was a whole period where there was some awareness that there was increased trouble she had a hospitalization a couple weeks before uh, with self-harming behavior this this having a hospitalization like that was not usual for her so there was heightened awareness concern and worry about her that she might be spiraling downhill having also lost her father before that and and problems with an ex-husband and and then she came to a point where uh, the day that she actually killed herself it seemed okay she's okay she saw her boyfriend in the morning and their things were okay uh, she said she'd see him later um, but um, she apparently was and she was cheerful but it was resolved and so after this whole period which of course Cedar experienced from a distance across the country um, there was the actual uh, she disappeared and for a while there was an uncertain period during which Cedar was convinced uh, in her own mind that she knew that Carlton had had died had killed killed herself and and then that was indeed discovered um, uh, that night, and she had g- uh, gone to a, a, a pawn shop, and she purchased a gun, and it was on a surveillance camera, which was really painful to know and to learn from uh, how concrete it was and that this was not her usual way. She didn't have guns. She didn't go to pawn shops and things, so it was really unusual. She went in and out and in and out of there, and then she purchased a handgun. And within an hour, she had uh, gone down the highway and sat down against a tree, has smoked a cigarette, and then shot herself in the head. And then this word got out uh, of what had happened. And uh, I would say, Cedar, what I, what I read next into a number of things you talked about was there was a whole period uh, that I might call shock, uh, numbness you described, uh, being in limbo, Uh, there was a sense of of kind of like uh, anguish and fear and mystery that what what has happened where is she is she loose is she loose in your house is she a ghost and uh, and in your blog post you refer to a, a state called bardo in buddhist functioning where somebody is gone but not totally gone yet and they're kind of still half present and something like that so i think there was a whole period like that and then it seemed to me you go through another stage that a lot of people might identify with if suddenly you're caught up in lots of practical and immediate arrangements about somebody's uh, funeral and their their leftover belongings and immediate decisions to be made about things and executorship and all of these things and that really immerse you in and in your case also the writing of the uh, and delivery of a eulogy and an obituary seemed to be very important moments in sort of even in your own angst at that time kind of using some of the capacities that you had to organize your thinking and to write something since you've been a writer during your life uh, that it, maybe that was helpful but it certainly was another thing to do and and then if I read it right you went back to start to resume normal life but it was the, an acute grief stage that was different than later with daily sobbing and having trouble with uh, normal functioning at work pulling back a bit uh, taking a little bit of leave from that and just getting through the uh, agony and of, of crying all the time which is something I identify with not about this particular scenario but other ones and how you're really uh, it's just you're wrenched Um, and it seems like after that still you had to go back and deal with a lot of stuff a lot of leftovers from Carlton's life a lot of decisions to be made and practical things to be gone through and it seemed to me from hearing from you and then having heard from other people after deaths, whether or not they were suicides this whole period of sifting through People's things, somebody's things, and disposing or making decisions or distributing and trying to make sure people who deserve things get things, that this whole business is very occupying. And one thing I was touched by uh, was how you, in a way, you learn even more about your sibling, uh, things you see, things she has saved, things she has written. Like you said, she had saved letters from you. And though there wasn't this kind of overt love always expressed between the two of you, there was a sense of you being important to her and there being loving statements made and and other things that you discovered uh, where you, in a way, get to know your sibling beyond what you knew before, some things especially if somebody's kind of a hidden type of person. Um, and finally, I think coming to terms with your own behavior which everybody in a family where there's a suicide i think has to somehow come to grips with gee did i do everything i wanted to do did i handle things the way i wanted to handle them so i just wanted to summarize that so that it puts people back in place of what this is what some of these were that may not have been a great way to organize it and you can comment on that uh, or or whether it opens up other pathways but and then I'm following any comments about this cedar, or or if you just want to jump into it, however you want to handle this. I just want to, I just want you to be able to tell us now, um, how did you go through all of this? I mean, just so much, and then to be in a place where you can talk in such a personal, meaningful, sensible way, including how did you digest or manage the negative emotions about. Carlton and what she did and your other sister and the ex-boyfriend or husband ex-husband of Carlton that really didn't behave very well and and Carlton's kids that you then took a major role in caretaking so how did you do this
1: well thank you Charlie you start for anywhere really, you want Pardon? yeah thank you for a very very thoughtful summary and I think um, very thorough extremely well thought through thank you um, and all the kind of things you said about me and, and my work and you know, I, I uh I feel like the stages piece is very, very relevant, um, in terms of how I coped and what skills were useful for me. Um, you know, you, you referenced my father and his and his war uh, history. And, you know, the the tendency, my tendency to sort of soldier on uh, was definitely there hmm. up until the time I came back home after the funeral. And it actually served me very well. Um, I needed to be able to do those things. Um, uh, and there really wasn't anyone else who could do them. My other sister, my older sister, was really prostrate herself with her own grief and was not in a good functioning place at the time uh, when we needed to make all the arrangements, although she and I did make them together. But once I got home, I think the most important thing that I was able to do to cope was to really recognize, uh, look, I cannot carry on business as usual here to, you know, uh, uh you know, very much uh, cut back on my schedule um, and uh, take a mini leave and really um, do a lot of uh, walking, uh, meditation because I could not sit. I was too agitated. I was too distressed. Hmm. So I took a lot of mindful walks, sometimes with my husband holding my hand. Uh, I needed, and you know, in silence. He's also a mindfulness practitioner, and he he provided me tremendous support mm. Um, mm. during that time. I honestly don't know what I would have done without him. Um, at that particular time, the key thing I was having to do was self-acceptance. Uh, mm. I had to accept that I had not gone to Louisville, that I had not been able to prevent this from happening, um, that I had not... Um, recognize that this was imminent uh i and i i you know even saying it now i can still feel some of those feelings but i was thrashing around with that hmm. and i finally really had to radically accept that that was true that i had not even when i am you know an expert at suicide risk assessment and management. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I did not think she would do this. And in fact, I was doing the things that I would do with clients. I was calling her daily. I was checking in with her, you know, on email. I was checking in with people around her, and I really did think she was starting to uh take a problem-solving approach to the things that were um that were so, uh, felt so insurmountable to her. Mm-hmm. So I had to really, I had to really radically accept that. Um, and, you know, probably, you know, I, I've, I've thought many times since, given the way that, you know, I'm the younger sister, and she was the big sister, and there was always a tendency for her to, in a little way, in small ways, to dismiss some of the things that I would say to her about that she needed to start a mindfulness practice, for example, and how to get it going. Um, and so yeah. I, I, I finally really had to accept that possibly even had I, and I don't know if this is an excuse or whatever, but I, I, I know that on some level in my wise mind it rings true that even had I been there, I wouldn't have been able to stop her. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the reality we deal with with suicidal individuals. We can't prevent them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know she could go into that pawn shop at any time and buy that gun and drive off the road and do that
0: something you said last time too was that um, when she did this was a couple weeks after getting out of a hospital and so you yeah. could think that if you went out there and had her go in a hospital if you right. thought there were warning signs that maybe that would be preventative but as you pointed out last time um, you know, it's a high-risk period when you go in and come out of a hospital. Yes. And that's just statistically a high-risk period. And so, you know, it's very hard to know how to stop it. I think, uh, they, you know, calling somebody, letting somebody know you care, I think is one of the only things that has been shown a couple times uh, in some specific research to make a big difference. But theres it's amazing how you can't know but I did want to ask you yeah. because this is exactly what I was pointing to at the beginning is I don't know how much more you can say for people who don't know exactly what they would do uh, how they would do what you said but one thing you said was you would do you were there you were in the period of agony and you would take mindful walks yeah and with your husband I wonder, mm-hmm. and so, and the other thing you said about uh, using radical acceptance to come to grips with that you had not been out there and, and you hadn't been able to prevent it, could you say a little more for us to understand, like what are you doing when you do a mindful walk uh, that helps to get through this?
1: Well, I have um, a place in my neighborhood that is a very quiet a uh, road that becomes a dead end and then there's a little trail that goes along the river mm. and um, through the woods and you can come to a bridge and turn around and go back and it's sort of my daily walk. I walk it pretty much every day and it's about two and a half miles round trip. And usually uh, when I go, I'm either walking with my husband and we're con- conversing or I'm walking alone and listening to a book on tape or sometimes just doing a mindful walk. And, you know, when you're really in a lot of distress, a lot of times you can't concentrate. And, right. uh, you know, I didn't want to distract. I'm not a person, interestingly, who cries easily. So I really kind of wanted to take advantage of the time when my tears were readily available and Mm. go ahead and experience that anguish Mm. and the the easiest way for me to do that was outside in the natural world moving my body Mm. it seemed to be much more tolerable than sitting um and so we would walk in silence and uh, as i said sometimes we would hold hands Mm-hmm. And I would allow myself, I would allow tears to run down my face. I, I'd, you know, you very rarely would run into anybody on this walk occasionally. Um, but people knew what I, I live in a very close community and people in my community knew what I was going through and it's a very, very. supportive community. Um and so, you know, I, I felt free to just walk with tears on my face. That was, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And so it was a way of being with my emotions, not judging myself, that was a huge practice. I did do um, some loving-kindness meditation uh, uh, toward myself. Um, and that was really... Because I, I i could very easily have gotten into judging myself uh, and blaming myself and uh, feeling guilty. But when Peter, what, my wise mind would tell me that wasn't the case.
0: Can you say more about... Um... In, in specifics that let's say you're walking along and you're having this surges of feelings and you're having this thought oh my god i i should have gone out there who knows and you might be judging yourself that you didn't go out there or that you didn't know see this was coming i mean let's say that's in your mind when you say then to uh be non-judgmental about that exactly what would you do how do you get from judgmental to non-judgmental when it's such could be such a strong feeling state?
1: Well, I, th- I would say there are two ways, Charlie. One way would be just the simple noticing the thought and letting it go, and
0: okay. that's what
1: I would do on the wa- on the on the um, mindfulness walks. The thoughts would arise, and I wouldn't entertain them. I wouldn't go toward them. Mm. I would just notice it and say, "Oh, there's that thought again," <laughs> mm. and let it go. And it. It it gradually really had a very powerful effect of diminishing the power of the thought. Mm. Um, But then the other way was that when I would talk about it or write about it or think about it, my I would really try to counter the thought because you know there was a timeline. There were facts that prevented you know that stepped me stepped me away from going there. Mm-hmm. one was that i had been already been gone from my practice for a week um, teaching an intensive i came back and i got a really bad cold and i was sick and then shortly thereafter she started to seem to be better mm-hmm. and so i would remind myself of the facts checking the facts mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. but but i think what i practiced more than that was radically accepting that it was as it was mm-hmm. That this had occurred, and that my, um, you know, my involvement in it or was, was as it was, and that, uh, and just and then step away from um, self blame, and um, and it, you know, in some ways, as I moved out of that anguish uh, period of time and started to uh... become much much more involved in what was going on in my nephew's lives who were you know in a in a turmoil of grief that was that made mine mild really mm-hmm. um... especially my older nephew uh... who has an iq of somewhere around between forty five and fifty mm-hmm. and um that was also really helpful in me just kind of accepting reality in the moment you know there's something about grief that has takes you back into the past and there's a lot of this why 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 right. and ultimately mindfulness brings you into the present and it brings you it may not feel all that good but it does lead you to uh, or it leads it leads me to accept present moment mm-hmm. and be in present moment mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, not dwell in the why you know why, you know why why did this happen uh, what could I have done um, that that sort of anguished sorting through the past
0: you know it's really interesting what you're saying because I hadn't thought of that angle but I think when you have something like this happen lots of things like this can happen there is as every time you ask why about something where the answer is it, the real answer is very complicated it isn 't like you 're going to find the answer um, mm-hmm. it 's really there 's something about asking the question why your mind is thinking in the past you 're working through something and and maybe it 'll be useful sometimes to go over it in detail because you might come up with something that would be important to you but it seems like a lot of the time it just promotes kind of ruminating yourself into the past and 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 making yourself worse um, and and yet you don't want to ignore the past and so when you say it's a lot of this has to do with how do you deal with the way the past comes into your mind the whole story um, mm-hmm. and how do you find balance about that because when you said be in the present moment like dealing with your nephews or anything else in the present moment I know I know what I know that you don't mean ignoring the past Mm uh it isn't like blocking out the past it's just sort of like seems like focusing on what do i need to do now what's going on now and Mm -hmm. somehow allowing yourself to just know that this is the way things are and
1: rather than
0: questioning why do why are they this way why did this happen to me why did this happen to her why didn't i do something about it why didn't so and so do something about it there's a lot of that that has no answers we torture that's
1: ourselves. true and you know it's 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 one thing to, to you know to look back and sort through the facts and you know kind of like almost like a chain analysis yeah. of uh, understanding well this happened and then then I thought this and then this happened to that felt this and then I did this and so on and so forth and that is very useful and very helpful mm-hmm. um, if it's done in a non-judgmental way, but there's something about why, 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 or I should have, I should have, I should have, that is not helpful, and it is judgment, it is judging, and it is in a way not accepting. Um, okay, this is, this is the series, and you know, a lot of times it's not self-blame that we're dealing with, but and this was true for me too. But it's it's blame of others. You know, mm-hmm. why did this person do this? This person drove her to this. This person, um, you know, if this person hadn't done this, this wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. And um, that is also a very bitter dead end. And I had to really come to terms with, um, you know, my tendency to want to go into blaming others as well as myself mm-hmm. and not, not, not wanting to go there. Um, something that really helped me there um, was my um, embrace of the Buddhist vows of uh the great vows for all, uh renouncing ignorance, hatred and greed. Um, you know, that's a very powerful vow that you take at the beginning of a uh and it is you know, you take it every morning or every night and it it really affected me powerfully it was a teaching that made me say I must I have renounced this you know I'm not gonna go down but for
0: people who don't have Buddhist practices can you say more about what um, what does that mean you're renouncing and by the way I know this is echoed in your last blog post from December Mm -hmm. about this where you said how important it was for you to be able to experience anger but not let it go towards hatred right what do you Well, in
1: now? those first after the after I went through went to the house and and you know distributed um, some some of her things and staged the house for sale and arranged all those details to get it on the market and so forth um, and I, I I came back and I, and I entered into another stage, and this was a stage where I was dealing with a lot of the mess of um, her life, mm-hmm. including the people who, um, you know, who were involved in that mess. <laughs> um, people I wasn't closely related to uh, that I did I didn't have close relationships with, but people who now were turning to me as her personal representative because I was her executor and who in in some instances were were um, playing some pretty serious hardball to try to get their hands on some of her some of her money mm-hmm. uh, and I was committed to um, make sure that her money went to her heirs and that was complicated because they are on social security disability and they have certain benefits that have to be protected. So mm-hmm. it was a very complicated legal, lots of attorneys, uh, and I wanted, I did not want this to disturb my equanimity. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to stay in a place of clarity and peace, peace as much as I possibly could. So that meant... That I had to identify the emotion, for example, I had to really practice non-judgmental stance. I mm. had to really stick with the facts. You know, mm. this is, uh, n- rather than this is bad, this is, uh, this is evil. <laughs> it's more like, uh, the result of this particular thing is that uh uh money would be taken away from uh my nephews who need that who will need that money over mm-hmm. their life co- life course that's more and so i'm going fact. to yeah. just the facts stick mm. with the facts and make a wise mind decision about how to proceed under fire um mm. and w- and not ruminate not have angry ruminations that are essentially you know hate focused Um. And to, you know, and I, it's not like I am, um, immune to greed. You know, there were, there was money on the table. Uh, it wasn't going to come to me. Uh, but whenever money's on the table, it, you know, greed rears its head. Hmm. And so, hmm. you know, being aware that, oh, you know, danger, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to be mindful in the moment, um, of, my role as my sister's personal representative and trying to be clear about what she would want mm-hmm. um, and these were prof- profoundly uh help helpful for me in going through that next storm which was i think the storm of of anger and mm-hmm. uh it this shouldn't be uh, not so much that she shouldn't have killed herself although certainly that but also, that it shouldn't be happening like this. These people shouldn't be doing these things. Why do I have to get yet another attorney letter? You know, what is going on here? Meanwhile, my nephews who have, you know, very limited resources in terms of how they deal with their strong emotions are, are just, you know, my one nephew became psychotic. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so, and dealing with, you um, you know, the, the institution where he lives who didn't want to let me talk to him. Mm. Because, it, because his father didn't want him to talk, uh, you know, wouldn't, didn't want them to talk to me. They would let him talk to me. Mm. So it was, it was a, it was a trying time and it was a, one of those things where, where I remember my teacher saying to me, you know, when you're walking, you know, in the dark, you ju- you, you have to just see, you can only put one foot in front of the other, you know? You can't mm-hmm. see far enough down the road to see where you're going mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you have to mindfully do you know as they say in a in AA, the next right thing you know the you know, next but, thing and
0: you're it, also saying yeah. you ha- in your case you're saying that you there were things you had to make sh- you you had to guard against like you had your own internal guardians against going down the road i could imagine being in a situation where you discover uh, somebody who is trying to get some of these resources mm-hmm. that you feel should be going to your nephews and, and then you, I could easily imagine getting into a kind of like, uh, a, a state of blame and a state of anger and a state of how dare you do this and a state of, mm-hmm. of, of this shouldn't be happening and why am I in a family? Like, I mean, you could go a long ways with this and, and, mm-hmm. and it all would not advance the cause of of just kind of getting I guess in DBT terms being effective right and that point exactly. you 're busy into being what's just and what's unjust and what's right and what's wrong and instead it's really like almost I'm just having a physical view of things coming at you which would be your own impulses to go this way or that way towards hatred towards uh, you know punishment of other people and yeah. judgment and just try to stay wait a minute um, Sometimes, Cedar, I think of it like this. I think um, we often are not very skillful in situations we're in because we we say to ourselves things like that, like, I shouldn't be in this situation.
1: Right. Or, this is... They shouldn't, I shouldn't be, be doing be with this. These What's people. wrong with them? Yeah. What's wrong
0: with these people? What's wrong with me right. that I'm with these people? And why do I live here? And Why do I do that? And all of these things which are very human and natural to do, but somehow... Uh, you have to get to a place that's more a more helpful place to be I think in solving things and having a more balanced life is to say things like this is the life I have this right. is the situation this has been
1: given to me to deal this been,
0: with this has been given yeah. to me this is my
1: mm-hmm.
0: job I mean my mother would have said it in a more Christian religious way because she would have said things like this is, your um,
1: cross to bear. <laughs>
0: this is your cross to bear God gave you this this, is, this yeah. is yes. God gave you this, and He'll give you the strength to support, to deal with it. And it's sort of like that's a, a different way of thinking of it, but it's the same idea. It's like mm-hmm. yes, they, you may not have chosen this in every mm-hmm. possible way, but this is it. This is your these are your nephews. This is your sister who killed herself. This is your sister from whom you're estranged and very unhappily. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is your family culture. Um, mm-hmm. and it is, it just is,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> rather yeah, and, than and, and thinking of all the ways it shouldn't be. Right. My sister, um, my surviving sister, um, really very quickly faded into the background. She, once we had, uh, you know, I saved a lot of things out of the house for her and allowed her to go in the house and take what she wanted, and once she was out of the picture, she, she has not uh, reemerged it was really the battle with her two ex-husbands and her boyfriend. Uh, and, and I found that the skill of the scribe was tremendously important, uh, to, to, to me. I had to use that constantly. And I even got to the point where I had to, you know, my husband and I, when we would talk, it's not like I would use that just with, you know, I had to use that all the time. I had to step away 100% from judgmental language and stick with the facts mm-hmm. and it was hard but it was such a valuable valuable uh gift really and I think it I learned so much from it in terms of how that diffuses um, anger and hatred and you know and, and another piece is radical acceptance that some things will never be really resolved I I mean you can't say never because radical acceptance is in the moment for the moment but radically accepting that it's not looking great let's say for me to ever have a relationship with my sister again uh it doesn't seem a possible uh possible radically accepting that uh that this um, loss and estrangement is there and that mm-hmm. it hurts and that I don't want to, I really don't want to try to rekindle something mm-hmm. um, with her because I just am, I just don't feel that. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that I want that. There's a, a Yiddish word, suras. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of self-acceptance, a lot of acceptance of things being messy and unresolved. Um, you know, one of the things that I had to do was, um, my sister had this boyfriend who was who lived in the house and had no visible means of support and who had the idea that he was gonna you know take possession of the house, which was her largest asset and um you know i had to i had to evict him mm-hmm. it was you know it was really um mm-hmm. it was hard <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to have to do it yeah. um and wow. so there were, there were these things that, and I never thought this would, you know, this is not the kind of life I've ever lived, where I had, you know, people going out to evict somebody from a property. Right. Uh, right. So, uh,
0: you had to do it, something that you really was not in your previous repertoire to do. You just had to do it. Not at all. Because right. somehow it was clear enough to you that that's what had to be
1: done. Right. And, you know, so as I moved through this, I really, one of the things that I started doing was I really redoubled my efforts to practice the uh, the what and the how skills. Honestly. I mean, I no, think I that it. one of the things that, that Marsha Linehan has given us in her DBT skills mm-hmm. is this amazing way of generalizing the practice of mindfulness to to every moment and you know uh, I mean I'm thinking about the skill of participate we I we did a um, it, when I think I may have referenced the fact that that uh, uh, my sister's ex-husband the father of her children sued her 16 times Between Mm -hmm. their divorce and his death Mm -hmm. and of course one of the very first things that happened was a lawsuit was filed against the estate And the court to its credit said no, we're gonna. This has to be mediation Mm -hmm. So in good faith, I you know flew to Louisville and uh, We did we did a I am not kidding you 12-hour Mediation and we got Mm -hmm. nowhere Mm-hmm. and absolutely nowhere there with was him, no it it with, was like he wanted unconditional surrender uh-huh he wanted basically us to give all the assets to him mm-hmm. uh, and this was at a time when um, I was working I was talking with my nephews daily and they were having almost no contact with their father so I was not confident that if he had control of the assets, that they would get uh, their their needs met. Mm-hmm. And this is someone who also had had gotten control of a large portion of of other aspects of her estate that weren't that were in trust. Mm-hmm. So it was, and I used the skill of participate to stay present, because I I spent. Twelve hours in a windowless room in an attorney's office, eating sandwiches that were brought in, and having the most you know one extreme uh, proposal after another brought in, and we and and this was also interestingly the day after the election of President Trump. <laughs> mm. Oh my God. It was a really it was a really tough day uh, and the day before my birthday. Mm-hmm. But, um, but at any rate, I participated in the moment, but just to stay present. and you know, it really helped. It really I
0: mean you just let yourself uh, stay in it, stay in the conversation, even with one extreme proposal after another that's coming your way. It right. must have taken a lot of effort just to stay in it and say, okay, now let's take on this. Maybe the practice of one mindfulness. Exactly. Like, okay. Let's just
1: read through this really carefully and see if there's anything to which we can agree. Yeah. You know, and I had two attorneys there and my husband was there and it was a judge who was coming back and forth between us. It was really, um, and at a certain point, I really did have the feeling of, you know, there's a scene in the Bhagavad Gita where, I mean, actually, the whole Bhagavad Gita is where, uh, and this is the holy book of uh, the Hindus, where mm-hmm. Krishna, who is the incarnation of the divine, is the charioteer for Arjuna, who is the prince uh, in the great war, the Mahabharata. And they're all lined up on the battlefield facing mm-hmm. each other, and they're getting ready to go at it. And Arjuna says to Krishna, I don't want to fight. I don't want to be part of this. It's my family over here. It's my family over there. I can't, I don't know, I just, I can't fight. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Krishna says, um, Arjuna, you have to fight. This is your life. You have to fight. Fight mm-hmm. and remember me. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um... You know, at one point I thought, well, this is a very strange little reenactment of the uh, Mahabharata. You know,
0: Not only that, you know, there's a couple things come to mind. One is there's n- never, I haven't, it's been a long time since I heard a situation or thought about it that is so much um, what you might say is uh, um, trying to keep your head about you when everyone else around you is losing theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of like, how do you do that? And the other thing is, you're talking about another battlefield, but God, I, I really would, I wonder what it was like for your father in World mm-hmm. War II, because mm-hmm. all you're using combat metaphors, and I, I think they're appropriate. There's something about how hard it would be to keep going when you don't want to be somewhere, when you don't think something right is happening, and when you're in that situation, you have to accept so much if you're going to be keep going and and being effective and not get thrown off guard and you're i just sort of you know you said in your earlier in another podcast about how you saw saw yourself as sort of connected your father in this way and i think it may be even more than you think because we don't have access to my father was in world war ii also but uh didn't have that particular kind of record but you know, to really know uh, what what what's what do you have to radically accept? Uh, to well,
1: point? you know, I I heard him. You know, he was a battalion commander in North Africa, uh-huh. and what he did, what he fought for, was his men to try to protect his men and to try to okay. you know have them. I mean, that's what he. That was his and his you know his fellow officers and i feel like for me the the thing that i was fighting for was for my nephews and, exactly. and i can say that they're doing so much better yeah. both of them they're doing so well and i also have to say that we did reach a settlement it, it wasn't in that horrific uh, mediation, but six months later when I had the presence of mind to do the mediation over the phone, and I actually wasn't, I was like basically, I was baking bread while the mediation yeah. was going on yeah. and making a Waldorf salad and various things. <laughs> well, well uh-huh. my attorneys hashed it out and, and we arrived at a settlement and it's a good settlement uh-huh. and uh we've put away our uh you know, our weapons of war. <laughs> We've uh-huh. reduced our attorney costs. And, uh, and, and both my nephews are in better living situations with more quality of life. Oh. And, you know, our, my relationship with them is, is, um, strong and, uh, and, and nur- nurturing both ways. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you know, it's, 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 it took, I mean, I think this is the, the thing about grief is that eventually, you know, you do come to acceptance if you keep working at it. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and you can see that as, as painful and as horrible as the past is, that there is an integration that occurs over time and we can find solace. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder how important it was in this whole process for you that there were your nephews. That there was, oh. that there were people that you cared about that were basically at risk of being pushed aside and not being able to fend for themselves and you, so it gave you a cause and it mm-hmm. gave you a very human loving cause and a, and a relationship with Carlton. Uh.
1: Absolutely. And, I tell you that i wouldn't have done any of the of the executor stuff i would have i would have just let the people who wanted her money have her money Uh um i i really i wouldn't have been involved with that it would have been a totally different story if it weren't Mm. for alex and peter Mm. and you know i um i'm getting i'm planning a trip right now i'm going i'm pretty sure i'm going to be going to new york to see peter play hockey and, you know, that's something I'm really, really into. Mm. And, um, and then I'm going to see, um, Alex in Louisville in June. And I'm, you know, it, it's a it's a whole new thing for me. I wasn't really much of an aunt before. I mean, I was really not much at all. I sent them Christmas presents and birthday presents and, but I didn't, you know, I rarely talked to them unless I saw them in town, mm. you know, mm. and now I have this relationship and it, it does, connect me with with carlton and hmm.
0: um you know but let and, me ask you know, this peter with,
1: yeah. either
0: either you said something or else i read it in your blog that i'm i don't know if i got it right but uh that carlton had left at least one version of a will that her own estate was to be divided between you and raleigh not mm-hmm. not her boys but mm-hmm. that you were fighting for things to go to her boys is that right or did or
1: It was it was her suicide note, Charlie. Her suicide note. Her suicide note. It was to be divided between a certain amount of money was to be given to her boyfriend, which was what he was, you know, clinging to. Right. A certain amount of money was to be given to her second ex-husband, not the boy's father, and the rest, who was who she who she said should, and he did get quite a bit of money from an annuity. Um, that she mm-hmm. neglected to change the beneficiary on. Um, and then the rest would be divided between me and, and, uh, Raleigh. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So but it you w- were
0: following her heart, um, regardless of that sort of, uh, note she wrote under the duress, but you were really following what would have been her heart path of fending for her children.
1: Um, Absolutely. And you know, also she was not of sound mind when she wrote that. She even yeah. said in the note, which was a handwritten note, which would, you know, holographic will does stand up if the person is of sound mind, but she said my mind is like a serpent eating its eating its tail. Oh my
0: tail. god. Yes, right. Well, that's what in, in a way that was helpful that she wrote that.
1: Yes, it it really was. And and you know, Kentucky state law is very clear in terms of, you know, The the heirs and she she did have a a will from two years before Mm. so yeah I want to
0: ask you one other thing we have a few a Mm -hmm. few minutes before we have to stop I it occurs to me when I'm listening to you about the things that helped you it actually overlaps some with you know conversations I had with uh, the therapist in Puerto Rico about how they came to grips with the hurricane that devastated Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico and and he emphasized how much um, it it came down to community, people helping each other, people being mm-hmm. there for each other, neighbors that you 'd had for years all of a sudden became real neighbors uh, mm-hmm. where and you, you sort of became a real aunt and you you also emphasized the community that turned up at the memorial service mm-hmm. in Louisville, mm-hmm. people you hadn 't seen for a long time and and the community you have back in Santa Fe that was supportive to you, and I just—it made me think as you were saying these things and how important these aspects were. They're not skills per se, but they are a reflection of having community. And how many people in these situations don't have that? They don't have your husband. They—they mm-hmm, they don't mm-hmm. have a community. They—they're right. um, really more isolated. They—they they may be more like uh, your sister Raleigh is, and or other, mm-hmm. you know. And how many people, both you and I, I'm sure, have known in our work lives, thera- therapy lives, people who don't have these kinds of um, communities. I'm, I'm just going to be giving more thought to how how do you generate, how do you use some of these acceptance skills? It I think it must help a lot when we have community that we know will support us to be able to then accept burdens and facts that are really hard to accept otherwise.
1: I think that is so, so true. And, you know, one of the little communities that really was so helpful was my my sitting group that I sit with on Sundays. Mm. Um, and, you know, we talk afterwards. And I would really encourage anyone who uh, has to go through this something like this and who feels that they might not have the support that they need yeah. to find that support, either in a, a grief support group or in a, um, you know, some kind of organized community that meets regularly. Yeah, uh, I think it's crucial, and we need to be able to. Grief is something that makes us. Uh, simultaneously want to be alone and need to be with others. (laughs) So something that's organized, whether it's a church group or it's a, uh, you know, meditation group or it's a, it's a therapy group, there needs, you you need to have some kind of, uh, I had a lot of those resources. I was very fortunate and continue to be,
0: but I think it's
1: easy to, to not have that.
0: You know, I, um, I'm at one, at one point in my life, not that long ago, uh, circumstances propelled me into an Al-Anon group and Mm -hmm. it met weekly they were people I didn't know I jumped in and and there was already a lot of kind of compassion within that group Mm
1: -hmm. as well
0: as having a a way of going about things it was unbelievably helpful when I think about it you're just highlighting that I, Mm I I don't think I have as many communities as you might have Uh, I have some, though. I have people I can rely on, and I do have a wife I can rely on. Those are really important things because so many people are coping alone. And um, It's true. I think there's a
1: group called Compassionate Friends.
0: Compassionate Friends.
1: Yes, that is for survivors of suicide. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, I believe. Mm -hmm. Good.
0: Okay. Good. Yeah. You know, there are other resources, too. I'll just say if people are listening to this uh with the uh American Association of Suicidology their their website has links and various resources to coping with uh with surviving a suicide of somebody you've been close to the AAS um, look Cedar we're in the final minute um, of our conversation I am so grateful to you for talking with us and talking so personally and in such a thoughtful way with an eye to what might help other people um i'm just touched by it and i i personally i appreciate that you and i've gotten a chance to talk about these things too because we've we've worked together before but it's been a long time
1: yes I've, i've really really enjoyed it and um it uh you know, I just looked up the website of compassionate friends and it's actually when when a family when a for a child who has died. Oh okay. Um but I think that might still be a useful resource for people. Uh, yeah, it's been a, thank you um Charlie for reading my blog, approaching me and for arranging these and and asking such wonderful provocative questions and uh I do hope it's been and for everyone who's been listening, thank you for listening and
0: it's <laughs> I'm sure it's given people a lot to think about and you know if I hear from people 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 do respond to me sometimes about these podcasts and they send in email responses and things I'll send anything on to you that comes in relation to these okay
1: I certainly appreciate Plus, that people Thank you so much. can
0: have access to you by going to your website cedarcoons.com and I'm sure they could leave a message with you if they want to absolutely okay Peter, I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Charlie.
0: Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.